Podcast from political blog The Groucho Tendency. We are recording this on what has been the hottest day of the year so far, where the mercury has reached a scorching 35 degrees Celsius here in London. And you'd think that politics couldn't possibly get any weirder. But in the last week, we have had the President of the United States calling for the election to be postponed. We've seen COVID restrictions being reimposed across England after the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, has sought to try and wind them down and tell us that normality could be back by Christmas. And to cap it all off today, the government has announced that Sir Ian Botham is getting a peerage. Could things get any weirder? Well, it is 2020. Hello and welcome to GNT, the politics podcast from the Graduate Tendency. My name is Mike Indian, I'm the blog's editor and author, and I am once again back in the pub, back in our rightful place, with the Nostradamus now of North London, Yes, the political soothsayer himself. It is, of course, Mr. Liam Kay. Very, very pleased to be here, as always. <laughs> we actually have, we've got our pints, we're on a nice bench, so we are in the Ferryboat Inn, which is over the road from my flat in Tottenham Hale, because I'm still not feeling brave enough to go on public transport yet, but Liam has brave, bravely come over here to see me. Um, how are you doing, anyway? You alright? We haven't done one of these in a few weeks. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm, I'm doing okay, I'm doing okay. Uh, very used to public transport again, but um, <laughs> it's... Uh, and uh, very glad the pubs are, are back open for uh, whatever uh, amount of time they may stay open for. <laughs> so, um, you know, enjoy them while you can. Oh, uh, dear. <laughs> yeah, we came here for a drink when the pubs reopened um, about four weeks ago. We've got a nice system going on. And, you know, cheers to all the staff here at the ferry boat. They're doing a great job. Got our drinks. We're very, very happy, I have to say. But... Um, going to talk about about politics about what's actually been happening in the world at large and i think we've got to talk about so today we're recording this is the 31st of july and it's fair to say that you know things have been going largely to plan for boris johnson so far you know that lockdown roadmap he unveiled mid-may has unfolded the last two and a half months largely as he's expected we've seen the reopening of firstly essential retail they're not essential retail then gyms, swimming pools, that was even brought forward. However, the last week or so, we have seen that trend begin to reverse of what has been taking place. Well, uh, you know, as of today, essentially, a lot of the reopenings that were planned for the 1st of August uh, are cancelled. If you were really, really, really planning on going bowling tomorrow Ooh. that's 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 off i'm afraid uh certainly for next couple of weeks mm. um if you were getting married tomorrow um i'm sure you probably already know that's cancelled as mm. well but um, I had my last wedding of this year postponed until 2021 last people have been holding out so it kind of felt like a foregone conclusion they'd, they'd read the tea leaves before boris had even said anything today yes yes it's i mean the general consensus that the government seems to be going in is that the R rate has ticked above one. Yes. And I think, you know, there's, there's a, it was quite a nuanced little press conference they had, I, I, I kind of felt. Um, 
I think there was very much an insinuation that you know they'd reach capacity mm. uh, in what they can open um, which does bring up a few interesting questions of what happens in September when the schools and that was are the, due to reopen those are the words still. of Chris Whitty the chief medical officer at the, the press conference yes. alongside the Prime he's, Minister he's, he, he said he said that it had reached capacity um, which brings the interesting I suppose trade off is what shuts to allow schools to reopen um, what indeed it is going to be one of these balancing acts now where do you, do you take the sort of like education benefits uh, you know I, I think given how much school pupils have missed I think it's paramount now to probably get them back into school mm. in September in some form or another mm-hmm. um, economically can already struggling industries take another huge huge hit and a potential enforced lockdown going into I mean you know a lot of the signs are that it may well be a winter virus so hmm. getting shut in August with the promise being re- reopening later isn't necessarily a promise that you'll be reopening so in 2020. W- so when we say lockdown here we're talking about not a sudden move back into a national lockdown here but we're talking about what we've seen in the last week which is a, a rolling back of certain freedoms so in the last week we saw Firstly, the short notice, the reimposition of travel restrictions to Spain and the Balearic Islands, where about 25% of tourism is made up of Brits. We saw the period for which an individual is expected to self-isolate with symptoms extended from a week to 10 days. We also saw, um, the day before we record this, uh, restrictions imposed in further parts of northern England alongside Bradford, Luton and, of course, Leicester. There's other local lockdowns. And today we saw the Prime Minister deviate for the first time from the planned reopening according to the roadmap of what he called the closest contact settings and the extension of face masks to more indoor settings as well and possibly more rigorous enforcement of that from the 8th of August as well. Yeah. So, when we're, when we're talking about lockdown changing here, what obviously the schools are the next big step. What do you think could be the things that they would want to shut to keep the, to allow the schools to open if, if, as, if as Chris Whitty says we've reached the limit of what can apply in the situation I think anything that reopens um, at the end of July I sort of I think it was the 25th of July mm. um, you saw things like gyms swimming pools reopen uh, the, you know theatres not really going to reopen sporting event trials being banned now and everything but you do have to look I mean I uh, it's it was very very much a lot of their model I think was based on the fact that they thought everybody was going to rush out perhaps to a lot of areas <laughs> I think what you're finding with the pubs and the restaurants is the pubs and the restaurants took people took a few weeks to get used to to actually feel like they could leave to go down to their local pub now they are sort of ticking up a bit in terms of how busy they are mm. 
the R8 is also ticking up. But because other stuff has been reopened, it's very difficult to see what the impact actually was of bringing open pubs and restaurants. Yes. Um, you know, gyms and things like that are important to reopen. I mean, once the government, I think, decided to bring out back the restaurants and pub trade, um, of which, you know, there's, there's, there's numerous other reasons why you would want those to be open ahead of gyms. I mean, like, you know, if you look at the tourism industry, for example, if you're a hotel, you are not going to want the local gym to be reopened ahead of the local restaurant or pub. So, um, you know, it's, uh, there's, there's, there's wider economic implications of why you would have pubs and restaurants open ahead of a gym, which, yeah, it does make people healthier, but again... It's actually a middle-class section of the population that goes yes, to as well. and we've all gotten very used to home ex. I mean, you saw the polling, I don't know if you saw this from YouGov, they polled about 2,000 people about different attitudes to returning to different activities or venues, and for nearly every single option, whether it be from going to pubs, to gyms, to going to outdoor gatherings, most people were very heavily against that. The, there was a steady proportion about roughly one in three to one in five, four, one in you know one in three to about four out of ten people who were prepared to consider it. And the most it was pretty evenly split when it came to getting a haircut. But when it came to things like going to pubs and gyms, gyms particularly, the percentage of wanted to go back was very very low. So about twenty thirty percent here of people wanting to return. In, interestingly, as well. Um, you know, there's, if you look at how certain sections of the economy are actually performing, mm. um, you know, stuff like the beauty sector yeah. um, has it's you know, fallen off a cliff. Um, that's you know, there's you know, you you don't actually see too much in the newspapers about it. But if you if you run a a line in selling makeup for a living, I'm fairly sure you will um, notice the fact that you know people wear it to go out and people have not been going out and no. people are still not really going out and like genuinely a lot of people have actually got used to not wearing it um it's, it's the same with it's the same with pubs people actually reasonably got used to drinking in and mm. if you don't feel a hundred percent comfortable and you know, I, I can I can say sort of like genuinely from you know just the experience of being at the ferry boat in and and numerous others uh, sort of since since it has been um, unlocked. You know, um, they are genuinely trying to. They're doing, like, they're, they, they're doing, they're doing their very possible, best here. Everything possible. And this is generally quite a comfortable experience, yeah. isn't it? You know, if, if you if you didn't know about the pandemic, you'd assume this was a fairly normal evening that we're recording this on. You know, we're, yeah. in, the, we're in the beer garden. You know, they've got the benches out here. Yeah, you know, there's fewer people here than you'd normally see, but yeah, that's you, the only you, you know, you order on an app, you stay at your table, people deliver it. I to like you. that to be honest. I think, yeah, it's I, I, I think it's actually an improvement in many ways, but um, <laughs> it's uh, signature to the bar anyway. Yes, and you know, it's it's one of those things. It's like getting the confidence um, back. I think the problem the problem that they've had is the the fact that it's perhaps being reasonably brisk the reopening is that I think they're left in the situation now where it's very difficult to say that closing gyms will offset the reopening of the entire um, English education system no and it's very difficult as well to see how you could 
certainly because gyms don't obviously exist in rural areas yeah. as well. You know, they're very, they're very much an urban concentration when it comes to gyms. Hubs are everywhere, yes. and it's the sort of like it's it's that it's that kind of trade off in a in a sense it takes. I mean, sort of you know, if you close retail, I think you're essentially killing the industry. Um, I think restaurants. I think likewise. I think you starting to get into the point where it's existential a second lockdown a third, into a, it a third of that 25% drop in GDP came from the service so to be shut yeah. down basically yeah. between sort of you know April to June yes and you know, certainly in places like London I mean you know these things make a big difference on quite a lot of other stuff I mean if you were looking at moving to London for example renting a flat would you spend your time looking around now thinking well everything's going to be locked down again is there any point in being in London maybe I'll actually move somewhere else and you know I, they're, they're, they're going to have they're going to have to make some quite difficult decisions if the R8 is genuinely one. They will and it should be said at the point of recording this that Sage aren't certain that the R rate is above one. They only are concerned it might be. They they think it's most probably I think between 0.8 and 0.9, but they are not overly sure that it's not crept above. And in certain parts of the country, it has crept above, and it has massively crept above in some cases I mean we've sort of seen you know you mentioned the the local lockdowns mm. uh, we had Leicester first which was more of a extension of the lockdown that was actually already still in place um, rather than a, a, a new lockdown um, you know there was there was some businesses they didn't, they didn't get shut. the pubs or non-essential retail reopening did they yeah no was, they've, they've still you know as far as I know, I don't think they've had them reopened. I, I have been near Leicester the last few weeks, not in the excluded area, but near it, and I know for a fact that a lot of the city's still shut down. Yeah. And, you know, you've had sort of restrictions put in place in, in Luton. You've had, like, the big, big one was Manchester, East Lancashire, Kirklees, Calderdale, and Bradford. Which is last All night. done la- uh, last night. Of which, um, you know, if... if as, as, as a, a northerner from from flying start is not shut down <laughs> yet um, they, uh, Leeds isn't the great city yes. of Leeds yes um, I, I, I do I do find it quite baffling um, the announcement of a local lockdown on Twitter at a few hours before it's due to come into play that essentially allows you to go everywhere in the entire region except other people's homes uh, the same weekend that Eid is happening Um, most of those areas like those quite large areas of that region that do not have a Muslim population really but there are some of those areas that have some of Britain's biggest uh, Muslim mm. populations, you know, particularly East Lancashire. You know, thinking places like Blackburn, yeah, uh, Bradford. Um, you know, I know sort of like you know places south of Leeds, like Dewsbury. Mm. I think Dewsbury's um, the highest concentration of uh, 
you know, Muslim people in the entire country, it's about 50% of the town. Mm-hmm. Um, to announce it on Twitter before a major religious holiday for, you know, the biggest religious minority in the country, I think, you know, I, th- I think there's been a few, th- if, if there's one consistent theme throughout the entirety of the government's handling of... Poor timing. Well, I, I, no, I don't think it's poor timing. I think, I mean, partly that as well, actually. Two <laughs> things, two things. Um, two but, things the government has failed. Three, three things the government has failed on. Yeah, poor timing and communication has been abysmal. Uh, people... Well, if you read my if you read my blog today on the Gratitude Tendency, shameless plug, you will find that this has been a reoccurring theme throughout most of this two this tone and tone and timing they've failed on as far yes. as I'm concerned. First of all, the setbacks have, have started way before this. Probably argue back to when they had to roll back on plans to have all children back in schools before the summer holidays. That was the first big setback. Yeah. Yet the Prime Minister still pressed ahead with bringing some aspects of the lockdown forward, with encouraging people to, with social distancing being cut, with people being encouraged to go back to work when the experts were saying it's still safest to work from home. Mm. And crucially, this sort of almost, but not in quite saying it'll all be over by Christmas, which of course we all know how well that went in 1914. Yeah. Don't we? And, you know, there's the whole. Hey everybody! Spain um, is on our quarantine list. So you'll get a few hours notice again. You know. Yeah, a few hours notice. I mean, the travel secretary being stuck in Spain under the quarantine rules. I mean, if members of the cabinet weren't even aware that decisions like placing the biggest holiday destination for British tourists under a two-week quarantine um, for returnees after you have essentially allowed people to go there in the first oh, no, place. It's, it's worse it's than that. Ridiculous. Shaps was in the meeting where they decided this and he decided to go anyway. Oh. Yeah, there you go. See, well, I mean, that's... Madness, isn't it? That's, um, there are two ministers stuck out there. Paul Scully, who's a junior minister at the business department, was also out there too. But it, it's, it's a few hours in position of this. I mean, you know, for, for parts of Spain's tourist economy too, I mean, Spain is just... I know, you know, there's been quite a few quarterly GDP figures out today. So France has just gone into its deepest quarterly contraction since the end of the Second World War, nearly 20% contraction. Spain has wiped out six years of economic growth, which is all basically all the progress the country has made since the financial crisis, which is still, its economy is still deeply damaged by, particularly in poor parts of the country like Andalusia, where youth unemployment is still about 50% yeah. in those regions. And now we're putting restrictions on the tourist economy, which, you know, might have helped part. I mean, certainly, look at the Balearic Islands here. The, the, the main flare-up of cases in Spain is around Catalonia, for example, but, you know, not on the Costa del Sol. But Spain's tourist economy is going to be decimated by these measures. You know, it's going to be, you know, I mean, if you think our, our service is going to be badly hit, you know, there are entire parts of the country around there where people have no income if there's no tourism. And, you know, even if you look... Um, you know, if you take a, I suppose a slightly less like Eurocentric view of it, you know, places like I think the third or fourth biggest tourist economy in the world is Thailand. Mm. Um, I mean, I, I, I read an article where they they went to Thailand. Somebody, a journalist, went to Thailand, and it was just essentially um, not a case of even kind of 
socially distancing on the beach. It's like you were alone on the beach. There were rows of bars that were open for you to go to go there. I mean, it's just kind of and you know, in in sort of countries like that, that have had sort of significant economic booms, which is you know, tourism's the third biggest employer in the world. Mm. There's like I think some, you know. There's a huge, huge amount of people worldwide that are reliant on tourism. And that's, you know, a lot of people, sort of, you, you know, different aspects of people's jobs. If you run, if you run any kind of service thing, but even if you just run a local shop in a tourist town, um, that is essentially your livelihood that is being put on the line. Um, in some countries, you know, perhaps in places, maybe maybe not so much Thailand, but you look around around the world. They're going to be places that are looking at where they can get food on the basis of the sort of like the global pandemic. And I think you know it's very important that the country takes the opportunity to um, sort of lockdown to protect mm. um, citizens here and mm. to make sure that there is not a sort of like an outbreak but at the same time I, I kind of feel that these decisions are being taken and they are creating sort of bottlenecks mm. I mean if you are in Spain what, what, what do you do do you carry on with your holiday um, do you rush and get back on a, a flight? I mean, was, I think it was um, one of the airlines. Um, I can think of what the one was, but I won't name them uh, just in case it's wrong. Um, it was. Uh, don't want to slander anyone on the podcast. Well, it's not like, you know, no defamation here. But um, one of them said <laughs> that they um, recommended everybody come back. Um, I think most probably with the insinuation that. Uh, you know, they may not be able to get back otherwise and you know, there just needs to be that better better communication I mean um, you know there's also there's also been as well you know tomorrow is going to be a big milestone um, if you've been furloughed that's the ending of the full furlough scheme but actually good talk Charles you mentioned protecting tourism jobs there we've got to talk about the fact that the government entire economic support packages shifting from stasis to support now. The Chancellor unveiled at the start of this month his so-called plan for jobs, which for those of you who may not have long memories entailed such measures as paying a £1,000 bonus per employee retained from furlough to companies. Some notable companies haven't taken that up. It entailed cutting VAT for most aspects of the tourism sector. So, for example, food, non-alcoholic drinks, accommodation and attractions. It had a stamp duty holiday of uh, up to, on properties of up to £500,000 until March of next year. And it, of course, it course had the much-wanted eat-out-to-help-out scheme Instead of dishy rishy 10, 10 pounds off eating out per person uh, at selected restaurants. It's, it's always important to um, sort of help out. Make the man prime minister now, is all I'm saying. But, Joking. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you know, I, th- I thought in many ways, in many ways, they were a good set of. Um, they could have gone further, but. They did say they, 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 they didn't pretend this is all they were going to do, as yes. you said. I think, I think the difficulty is with people. 
you know, there's only there's only so much in the Arsenal when it comes to um, the economy. So the Arsenal um, we're talking about is being funded by medium-term borrowing. So the Prime Minister's yeah. hoping to get the economy growing again to reduce the share of debt is, uh, to GDP ratio, which is already at a post-war high. It's over 100% now of the economy for the first time since 1963. And the Prime Minister said, look, we're going to fund this by borrowing. However, the autumn budget's coming later in the year. I suspect we're going to see some tax increases planned soon. I, I, think, I think the government will almost certainly know by October what the lay of the land is. Because um, furloughs be, are going to wind down now. So. Uh, yeah, there'll be, a, there'll be a few things um, that will be able to judge whether the flexibility over um, furlough has worked, whether it looks like sort of serious, serious amounts of redundancies. We've already seen like quite large redundancies being made, but whether it becomes a huge thing across the economy. Because um, unemployment hasn't gone above 3 million since the 80s. People are going to get very, very... Politicians policymakers are getting very, very twitchy about this right now. No, no government since 1979 has had to contend with mass unemployment. Yes. And, yeah, it remains to be seen, I think, whether... The, the current government has the stomach to accept that it has a choice between borrowing more or dealing with unemployment. Um, you know, I, th- I think electorally you would tell them to borrow. Economically, you would tell them to take the unemployment. I think... Um, it depends. It depends whose voice is probably heard 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 louder. I think um, it's it's difficult. I think they're in a difficult situation. But by by October, a little bit more of the lay of the land. There's also the point of you know there have been developments in terms of vaccine. You know, in October, do we know more about That's whether one is positive? Yeah. Um, if if one is possible by the end of the year which means that you know people across the country hopefully should have it by mid 2021 i mean do you do, do you do you try and keep jobs knowing that people will soon be able to actually come out again i mean germany's health minister talked about this this week and she wasn't that hopeful to be honest they they were not that hopeful about getting a vaccine before the middle of next year i mean granted we have seen positive responses over here in both the Oxford University study and also in America among uh, tests on monkeys yeah. but we can't hang all our hopes on the vaccine I mean for me the frustrating thing about Rishi Sunak's jobs package is the government is quite prepared to spend money in the short term protecting people but unfortunately they're more, it seems to be they're more concerned about the Q3 unemployment figures than they are about the long term economic implications of what they're doing now in any recession, it creates um, slack in the labour market. That is a natural tension. And for most of the last um, 10 years or so, one of the things that's concerned monetary policymakers and economic policymakers has been the lack of slack in the labour market. So the fact that we've had large amount, low unemployment, but also low, comparatively low pay and low uh, security and low standards of living as well. Tory jobs milk has been built on the back of low-paid, insecure labour. And these jobs, of course, are going to be the first to go largely in sectors like services, hospitality and tourism. But these are also low-skilled individuals. Now, the jobs package did contain measures designed to help people reschool 
reskill and tool up. But it was largely aimed at young people. But a study out this week from the uh, report out this week from the Financial Conduct Authority found that over 55s can be just as badly affected by job losses as, as the under 40s. Yeah. It's, it's the consistent failure. Um, we may come back to this in another podcast. <laughs> uh, um, Many more. We, we, uh, it's the consistent failure to ever have anything with resembling sort of lifetime education system in the UK in which people have essentially been asked at the age of I mean if you leave at, at the end of your GCSE if you left at the end of your GCSEs you were essentially asked at the age of 13 to 14 um, what the rest of your life should be like and um, it's a little bit life doesn't work like that anymore. yes no it's um and there needs to be some sort of system put into place but you know as as ever everybody has kicked the can down the road and then now when they would actually really really benefit from something like that um it doesn't exist so um, and just, it's not something that you can just create overnight it takes many years to do it but um and perhaps they should have um prioritized that over michael goes and, and, and our education has been gutted over the last yes. um 10 years or so so um, Sunak's jobs package. Some eye-catching measures. Are we hopeful it's going to achieve some means to an end? So basically, it's intended to make us enjoy summer, basically, and also to get some equity moving in the housing market again. Because about twenty-seven billion pounds worth of transactions were on hold because of the lockdown period. That's a lot of. It's about nine hundred. It's about ninety thousand properties, basically, if you take the average house price value. So, do you, were you impressed with the package? Do you think it will? I, can't, I still can't think of that without turning it into some sort of euphemism. Were you impressed with the measures? I can't say Rishi Sunak's package without turning it into a dirty <laughs> thought. So, yeah, he's he's laughing at that as well. Um, were you impressed with it, basically? Um, I I was underwhelmed, but I don't think it was bad. <laughs> It was. It was what I would. We're such children. <laughs> it, it was what I would say was um, a better package than you might expect. Could have banned the word but package. Could have been better. <laughs> sorry, sorry, Rishi. We're not impressed with your package. Don't listen to Dead Riggers, by the way. This is why I got this on my mind from last night. They did. They did a very suggestive sketch with him. I mean. In fairness to him, I think I think his package may well be more, <laughs> more impressive than perhaps uh, Sajid Javid's or um, Philip Hammond's may well Definitely be. Definitely Philip Hammond's. Um, he was also joined the uh, House of Lords, it should be said. Yes, Philip Hammond has uh, joined today. the House of Lords. So um, probably, probably an apology for sacking him in the first place. But um, <laughs> Clarkson there as well. All right, um, we've got about 10 minutes left, so I want to very quickly skip across the Atlantic because we've got to talk about the American election um, we can't talk about it all because it's there's just you know the, the, Trump has been just I mean he's resumed his COVID briefings he has been picking fights again with Dr. Anthony Fauci um, he has the Republicans and Democrats have been at loggerheads over whether or not to extend unemployment benefits that worth about $600 uh, to people who are currently on the dole Joe Biden's due to do, to do his VP pick next week, and I'd be very interested to hear who you think he's going to go for. 
Uh, we all know who the main name in the frame is. It's Kamala Harris, but other people, you know, I mean, I, I could I could spoil it now by saying that's who I think it will be. You think? <laughs> go on. Uh, Stacey Abrams has also been talked about. So is Susan Rice, Barack Obama's former national security advisor. However, I want to talk about the so-called. So, so for those you don't know, Linton Crosby, the Australian election strategist, has something called a dead cat strategy, where if you want to try and distract attention, you throw something, you can basically lob it to get attention away from this, you lob something called the dead cat onto the table. You make an outrageous statement on an issue that's designed to deflect attention. And this week, Trump took to Twitter to call for the 2020 presidential election to be delayed. Now, he can't do this. He hasn't got the authority to do it. He was very quickly shot down by the House leadership on it, from his own party, including Mitch McConnell, who is by no means somebody who normally speaks out against Donald Trump. Joe Biden has been consistently polling ahead of him, and we are. But we've been here before, four years ago, with Hillary Clinton, where the Democrats thought they were going to win, and actually Trump came out on top. So I've got to ask Liam: Is history about to repeat itself here? Uh, from 2016. From 2016. Um, honestly, we've got an establishment Democrat. We've got Biden has the lead in the polls, and lot miles more experience. And Trump seems to be lacking behind. Obviously, he has the incumbency advantage or disadvantage this time around, but I kind of feel we may be getting ahead of ourselves and thinking I, he's trying to write him off at this stage. I had like about a 50% success rate, if I may say so, uh, with the 2016 um, votes. Uh, Brexit, I got completely wrong, I'll admit that. But um, I, did, got that one right. I did manage to uh, win a bet that Donald Trump would get elected president. Uh, which I made in about June that year. Um, the person who I made it with will remain nameless, but uh, um, was it Paul Lynch? By any chance? <laughs> it, it completely was. <laughs> <laughs> if you're listening, Paul, we knew it was you. Got a friend yes. of the podcast there, Paul Lynch. But um, he probably owes me a drink at some point. But um, <laughs> no, um, I, I, I know, suppose Paul. I, I, I think, it, I think. I think I would, if I was to put money on anything, it would be on Joe Biden having a comprehensive victory, I think. Comprehensive victory? I, 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 think, I think the problem, the problem that Trump has is that he's been... In many, in many respects, if it, it, that regardless of which leader it would be in the world, if you put it to one side, uh, who he is, and uh, what he's been doing over the previous three years, he's been dealt the kind of hand in an election year that only just screams, didn't really matter what you did in the rest of it, um, you're probably going to lose. Like, everybody's unemployed, there's a pandemic. Um, it's very difficult to sort of say, here are my economic achievements when they've been wiped out by a virus. However, I think you can get around that to a certain extent by actually managing the via, you know, the whole pandemic, something resembling competence. And I think this time out, I mean, basically, you look at the polling, the problem that he's got is that he's not only behind in the polls, but when he was up against Hillary Clinton, he was up against somebody who was universally disliked mm. across all wings of the election. And Biden isn't. Biden is actually genuinely well liked. Um, well, yeah, the less they see him, the more they like him, but he does have a generally favourable impression. It's sort of, you know, to, to coin the old George Bush thing, the man you want to have a beer with. Yeah. Biden. I mean, the beer rule, in many respects, you look back on US elections, it, it kind of works. I mean, like, 
name the last US president that was not somebody who you would actually have a beer with. You might not agree with their politics, but they're not reasonably amiable and folksy to a certain extent. Even even to a certain extent, and I hope to say this, you would find having a drink with Trump in those teetotals quite entertaining, I suspect. You know, I suspect he might be, <laughs> it would be an interesting experience. Well, I, I, I think he's got the... I mean, like, if you take a UK um, sort of look at things... I mean, who would you rather have a night in the pub with? Would it be Boris or Jeremy Corbyn? Well, and uh, Boris is the Heineken Tory. I mean, that's the kind of uh, yeah. he's literally named after a bloody beer. Yeah, and you know, you look at the thing is, I don't think a lot of people the the general thing with the polling of the last American election suggested that the majority of Americans would prefer not to go with a beer with either Clinton or Trump, but decided that if they had to, they would rather have Trump. This time around, there's far fewer of them that would go for a beer with neither candidate, and, and those would rather go with Biden. And as we discussed on the previous podcast, a lot polling has shown that around sort of five to ten percent of Trump's voters in key swing states are thinking of switching to the Democrats as well because I, of Biden. I would say that Trump cannot win unless he wins all, like pretty much all the Rust Belt states, which he won last time. I cannot see him winning them all because. No. Biden, it's, it's Biden territory, and he, yeah, he, he is maybe not the South, but the Rust, you know, sort of the mid, the, the, the Midwest. Certainly, Biden he, could have more appeal there. I mean, Ohio, for example, Biden can win Ohio. Yeah, I, I mean, polling suggests he'll lose Ohio, but the polling suggests that his victories elsewhere will mean that Ohio, for the first time in. I can't remember how many ever decades it is, won't actually be the uh, on the side of the winning president. But you know, Ohio is one of those places that he may well he will he will look to target. Um, it's still a long way. It's still a long way from election day at this point in time. We are, but I mean, he was the vice president to a. Um, yeah, president who well, won two comfortable elections. The, the, I, think so. there, I think there are three things we've got to caveat this at the moment. So one, as we've said, we're a long way from election day mm. and the voters are only going to see more of Biden as we get close to election day and he is very gaff-prone. Yes. He is he is not Obama. He is not a reliable pair of hands next to a microphone. You know, I said this a lot of times when he's going on a speech, he can ramble, he can be incoherent. He has picked fights with voters as well. He's very easy to rile up. Mm. Two... There are considerable questions hanging over him about his conduct relating to certain women. No one nearly as badly as Trump, but that he is not a candidate without baggage. And last time around, the Democrats suffered from a candidate who did not energize the, the Bernie base. You want to call them that? I forget what you call them, but you know, you can't. There's no guarantee they might bring in the, um, for example, you know, have the appeal that Bernie Sanders did among the Latino vote. And lastly, I've got to say this as well: it's age. Biden is, you know, he has he is a man who has had a remarkable decades, you know, five decades on political career, but he is at the end of that journey now. Effectively, you know, basically, the, 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 the Democrats are asking the country to elect a man who is effectively a stopgap for what could be the first female, well, first female vice president and the first female president if she runs in 2024. Because Biden will not run for a second term. That is, that is, a, that is a, almost a guaranteed lock. So that is a, you know, is that going to be enough to get young voters? That I mean, the turnout last election was about 55%. I, I, I would always counter it with everybody's very, very, always very keen of like whether you can get young voters out, um, and 
quite frankly... But that matters more for the Democrats than it does for the Republicans. It does, broadly speaking. It does. And, I mean, the key thing with, Bi- the key thing with Biden, though, is he is, up, he is not up against somebody like... You know, if it had been up against George W. Bush, mm. I think we would be looking at a Bush victory. Yes. The thing with Donald Trump is... He does have his own base, which is very, very vehemently behind him. But they're not turning up for the rallies anymore, are they? Polarising. Yes. And had four years of him as well now. I mean, an underwhelming Joe Biden or four more years of Donald Trump. And a promising VP candidate as well, if it's the right person. So, before we go, last question. VP pick prediction. Well, I already said it earlier. Kamala Harris? Yes, so I'm with you. Again. I think, it's, I, think <laughs> I mean, I know there'll be a temptation to go for a, a Southern Democrat like Stacey Abrams I, or I someone think, from another I, state, but I think it will be Kamala Harris. I will say Stacey Abrams, I think, would also be a good pick, but I think Kamala Harris is the more experienced I think I think he's better to choice. go for experience, particularly given that... Given, given the age you need, you need, of the yeah, main candidate. Yeah, Stacey Abrams is a very exciting politician, but I don't feel that she'd be the right candidate to be the first female president of the United States of America, given her inexperience. Unless Biden was to give her an apprenticeship in the next four years or so. Yeah, I've I've never run for elected office before. Let's let's get this election out of the way before we talk about 2024. Two big elections to happen in 2024. (laughs) The general election, will Boris Johnson, will it be Boris Johnson and Joe Biden for the next four years, I wonder as well. Anyway, we can't answer that question. That's going to be for next time. Two very exciting things happening next week. Have you ever wondered what your MP gets up to during recess? Well, I'll be speaking to two members of Parliament about what they get up to on their summer breaks to try and prove that politics is all about Westminster. So those are coming out this month. Uh, I won't tell you who the MPs are now, but one of them I'm very excited about, and I'm very glad they will see if any more come out of the woodwork. Um, the Groucho tendency is www.thegroucho.co.uk. I am at Mike underscore Indian on Twitter. Liam is at Liam K. You can find him on Twitter. I've memorized his Twitter handle because he always forgets it. Yes. Um, <laughs> please, if you like the podcast, do give us a review on Apple Podcasts. It boosts up the rankings. Uh, until next time, stay safe, stay alert, try and control the virus, and we'll see you next time.